Last summer, as we were planning our podcast for the new school year, an organization called A Brighter Way caught our attention. This organization provides help to individuals who are formerly incarcerated in Washtenaw County. As our podcast grew, we became more and more interested in underrepresented communities, and a few months later, we finally contacted their director, Mr. Adam Grant. Mr. Grant was incredibly warm and accepted our invitation to be interviewed right away. One interview turned into two, and we were absolutely fascinated and humbled to learn everything about his incredible life journey. The next three episodes will be dedicated to him and his organization, A Brighter Way. I did 27 straight years, and then I did two years before that, so I've done 29 years of my 52 in prison. There are good and bad elements to anything. There are good and bad people wherever you go. Uh, There might be a a bigger pool of less than savory uh, people in prison, but there are also a lot of good people. There are a lot of people who helped put me on the path um, to living a life worth living, to living a purposeful life. So even though there are some pains I'm associated with it. One of the biggest pains is the fact that there are still people in there that I genuinely care about and that I know shouldn't be in there anymore. It's not serving society for them to be there. That's the most painful part about when I think about um, prison. But my time in prison was fruitful and productive and I changed my trajectory in the last 17 years that I was in there. And so when I came back out here, I was prepared because I didn't really, the only thing that changed was my environment. The way I lived didn't. But do you want to first introduce yourself? Oh, yes. My name is Adam Grant. um, And I guess, you know, people announce themselves by what they do these days too. So I'm currently the executive director of an organization here in Washtenaw County called A Brighter Way. And can we start from your childhood? How did you grow up? I mean, in some senses, I don't think that um, I grew up that different than, you know, many people. I was born to a 15-year-old mother. It was the typical, she was a freshman, he was a senior. Um, They got together over the summer, and by the fall, she was already pregnant with me. They were married for about two years, and that didn't work, and probably less than a year later, my mother remarried, because that's what you do in 1972 when you have a two-year-old child. Um, So she married my stepfather, which he was the black sheep of his family, and I wasn't even a part of that family. So it really kind of separated me um, from that family. It was abusive. It was, you know, verbally abusive, physically abusive. And then they were divorced um, in 1978, and then my mom was single for quite a while. So my mom waited tables, was on welfare, got back into school, um, but she was gone a lot. She was trying to, you know, make a living and trying to take care of her kids. And I was five years older than my youngest, I mean, my next sibling. So I was the one who took care of you know, a lot of things, and I don't know. I did a pretty good job with that until I was about 12, and my grandfather died. When my grandfather died, I went, I don't know what happened. Something broke, and I committed my first robbery and just stole from everybody after that. Um, I think a part of what happened with me was people have the best intentions, and they don't sometimes understand what, when they mean something, 
They don't always say it in a way that is taken the way it's meant. So they always talked about my potential. You have such great potential. But they didn't realize that what I heard was, but you're not living up to it. And so one of the things that I did is, is that I just stopped trying to live up to it. The easiest thing was is just to go ahead um, and, and be a successful failure. So every time people would start to think that I was doing well, I would do something in self-sabotage. Um, and that pattern kept up until I was probably about 30 years old. But I, I, I went to school, I did good in school um, for half the year, and then I'd always get in trouble, and then I'd just throw my hands up, wouldn't do it anymore, never finished. Um, I dropped out at 10th grade. I got my GED while I was in prison. Um, so, but I had sisters, I had half-sisters, I had step-siblings, I had all of those things, and I was always the oldest, um, which puts an interesting spin on it, too. So, I relish that role now. I didn't then. So, what exactly brought you into prison? The, the actual crime that I committed um, when I did the 27 years was for bank robbery and conspiracy to commit bank robbery. And it wasn't your run-of-the-mill bank robbery. It wasn't one where I came in and presented a note or something like that. I came in with a shotgun with two other people. The judge described me as a terrorist. And I remember first thinking to myself, I'm not a terrorist. And then I looked at it closely, and I was. I terrorized people. I came into a, a village of 700 people um, with a shotgun and walked into a bank and told them to give me the money and then left and then nobody knew what was going on in town. All they knew was that somebody was running around with a shotgun who just robbed a bank. That's terrorism. So that was essentially the crime that brought me to prison. I had previous crimes before that. I had a carrying a concealed weapon. I had a malicious destruction of property. I had a unlawful driving away of an automobile. I had a breaking and enter entering um, an occupied dwelling. But one of the things that brought me to prison um, that led to a lot of those crimes were my substance use history. Alcohol was my main substance that I started using at eight. And I used eight as my start date because that's the first time I drank to the point of passing out. I actually started drinking when I was five, which is a whole other story. And then it progressed into everything else. Anything that I could get my hands on that I did. I mean, you name most drugs, I've probably done it. And if I didn't do it, I didn't do heroin because somebody told me I'd enjoy it too much, which is crazy. But there aren't a lot of things like that. But that led to just poor decision-making, poor behaviors, and, a poor, and poor lifestyle choices in general. So you mentioned that you did like a lot of like these petty crimes, you know, like taking the automobile. Mm -hmm. Did these start like after you dropped out of high school in 10th grade? No, they started right around the time that I was like 12. I, uh, <laughs> it's funny, I never had a car, but I didn't like to walk. So I stole quite a few cars um, over the course of my life. A lot of crimes, especially when you're younger, are crimes of convenience. And if you get into bad habits, then you see an opportunity, you see a purse open in front of you. You see a cash drawer open in front of you. You see these things um, and you don't think about the consequences. You just think about the immediate gratification. Um, and I remember um, there was a cash drawer open at an old Zephyr gas station when I was like 12 or 13. And I remember seeing it and just grabbing a couple hundred bucks out of it. And they just, 
This is like 1982, 1983, so they just started arcades and stuff. So I was the man for a while. I was, you know, I was, everybody had quarters on me. Everybody was playing. And it seemed really cool. Um, other than the fact that I'd stolen from somebody else and I stole from everybody else I possibly could. The other thing, too, about those smaller crimes is when you are committing smaller crimes, it normalizes the behavior to you to some degree. So when you do one thing, it's easier to do the other thing. When you've already taken one step, it's easier to take the next step. Um, and I describe that sometimes even with my current case. A lot of people have thought about robbing a bank because they've been in a rough situation and they've seen all the movies. The difference is, is when I resist it, I resist it knowing that I could do it because I've done it before. So it's a slightly different um, um, level of resistance, um, especially over the course of my life. So, um, When was the first time you were detained and what was the cause for it? I was detained a couple times as a juvenile, but I was never, um, I was blessed and never actually got into the juvenile detention facilities. I was released um, uh, to my parents or to my guardian, which I realize right now, I realize now is, you know, partially a measure of white privilege is I was, because had I been a black male in these situations, the chances are that I probably would have been incarcerated sooner but they gave me chances. Uh, they gave me chances because of the pigmentation of my skin and because of the pigmentation of my parents' skin. Um, so I, 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 don't take that, I don't take that lightly. Um, and I think that I hold a bigger responsibility in some areas because of that fact, because the privilege exists. The question is, what are you gonna do with it? And are you just gonna try and preserve it or are you gonna try and break down the systems that have put it in, in the first place? Um, so the first time um, I was arrested was at 12. I got arrested again at 15. Um, then I got arrested for the first time as an adult at 17. And I think at 18. Then I went to prison for the first time at 19. Um, then I got out at 21 and went back to prison again at 22. So 12 was the first time that I had direct contact with the police. Is it difficult to recall your life in prison? And what were the living conditions like in prison? Uh, prison is actually better than jail in some ways. Um, you know, and you'll hear people that have done time in both facilities say they'd much rather go to prison because it's a bigger situation. You get time that you're, you're outside. Um, your privileges are, are a little bit better. But I've also described this. If, if, if you were told to go to the Four Seasons Hotel, the best five-star hotel, and you can't leave for 27 years, it would still be a prison. It would still have its problems. Michigan Department of Corrections is not exactly a welcoming place. Um, the food is garbage. You sleep on a mattress that's probably about three inches thick and lumpy. My back is still messed up um, from it to this day. Um, my, the arches in my feet fell down from wearing state shoes, so I've got flat feet now. Um, it's just, it's not meant to be a pleasant place, but I think sometimes, and some people take it too far to make it unpleasant because they don't understand that the worst part about prison is the separation from people, the not having options and opportunities. Um, and you don't have to make the conditions all that much more harsh to drive the point home. Uh, 27 years is 27 years. And I didn't need somebody, you know, constantly, you know, um, 
not literally, but hitting me over the head with a stick, telling me I'd done something wrong. I realized that um, I, I paid, you know, my price, and I was willing to pay my price. It was the petty parts of it, um, and the and quite frankly, the the abusive parts of some of the people that that housed us that became the problem. And it makes me think of um, a quote that I like, and it's. Um, people who enjoy uh, brutal honesty enjoy the brutality as much as the honesty. And I think sometimes some of the people, not all, I'm not saying all, but sometimes some of the people that are drawn to positions like that where they have authority over other people um, are drawn to it because of the ability to abuse that. Um, and, and many of them do. You mentioned that a lot of like the prison part is like the separation and like the missed opportunities. So was there anything specific that you missed? Well, I missed a, a number of things over that course of course of my life. When I went when I went to prison, um, neither one of my sisters had children, um, so I missed their not only their children being born, but their, them growing up um, because the prison system changed the visiting policy. So if they weren't your kids or your grandkids, you couldn't visit with them. So I've got a niece out here um, who's 28 years old now, and I didn't meet her until she was 26. Um, I've got uh, other ones that are, you know, teenagers and early 20s. and um, So I missed those things. Um, I missed my father passing away and everything that, that you know, kind of went with that. He, he passed in his sleep um, unexpectedly. None of us expected it. Um, I was grateful for the fact that two weeks before he passed away, he came up to visit me and actually told me he was proud of me, which was an interesting conversation. I thank God at work in some ways because having a conversation about being proud of somebody who's in prison is not exactly a common occurrence. I had done some work to that point in time, so there was something to be proud of. But I think knowing our relationship, there was something in him that knew that this was going to probably be the last time we saw each other. Um, and then the most glaring one was... Um, that my grandmother passed away six days before I came home. Um, but the timing of that was interesting too because on the day after I got home was her memorial. So I actually got to heal some bonds with some of my other family members. And it's a weird thing that, that um, you know, some Native beliefs were that, 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 that back in the day, the elders would walk off into the woods just never to be seen again. And it was kind of a way to take care of everybody else. I've had a good life. It's time for me to go on. Don't be burdened by it. And I feel that that's what my grandma did. My grandma knew I was coming home. She knew that she was, you know, my rock. And she knew that if I came home and she was still there in hospice, that I would have spent every day that I possibly could with her. And so I think that she kind of did her own version of walking off into the woods um, to free me to the life that I live now. During your time in prison, did you receive any parole? Yes, I was on parole for two years. Typically, you do anywhere from one to four years in prison. And because Michigan's got what they call indeterminate sentencing, which is, in its own way, it's its own cruelty because I had a 27 to 50 year sentence and two for the gun. So that means that they could, they could hold me all the way up to 52 years if they wanted to. And it's always hanging over your head. And sometimes it's extremely arbitrary, the things that they use to make those decisions. Um, in fact, I was under the habitual 
criminal act, which I don't even want to get into the legalities of that, but it did re actually make me stay in prison for two years longer than I should have because the courts didn't understand the way the law was 25 years prior. So I had to fight all of that and did two additional years. Um, but I did get parole and I did, I got paroled in, on January 8th of 2020 and I was released off parole January 10th of 2022, which was the first time that I was not either incarcerated or under some sort form of supervision, since I know you guys are younger, this is going to seem ridiculous, since 1985, I had been under some form of supervision or incarcerated. So uh, I've been off for nine months now, um, and it's amazing. What were some specific difficulties that you experienced both in the prison and like maybe in your personal life? Prison isn't what you see it as on, on on TV and the movies and things like that. It's I often described it as huge patches of boredom punctuated with unexplainable violence. Mm -hmm. That there would just be nothing going on, and it was just it, you know uh, for the for my early years I was bored. I wasn't bored a lot in my late years because I taught a lot of classes and um, stayed involved. But you see some things. Um, you see some things that you can't unsee. You see people getting. You see people getting raped. You see people killed. I remember early on in one of my sentences, I was walking to the chow hall with a guy, and I didn't really know the guy, but we were both on top lock, which means that we were on punishment, and so we were locked up in our cell all day. And the only time we got out was when we went to the shower or to the chow hall. And so him and I had kind of been talking, and I didn't know that he had his hands in some things that he shouldn't have his hands in. And so we were walking to breakfast one morning, and I watched somebody come up and stab him in the neck. Stabbed him in the neck, and, and, and so I'm standing on one side of him, and I watched the knife come out the side that I was standing on. Um, and that was really early in my bit. It made me realize how serious this was. Um, and whether, you know, because one of the questions is when you get a 27 to 50, the question is not only, you know, can I do it? It's can I survive it? Um, and the other level of that is, is can I survive it without actually being put in a situation where I have to take somebody else's life too? Um, because I was just as worried about that. You, there's a lot of things that go on in prison. There's a lot of things that also took place before here. There's traumas that, that, that started, started before prison. You know, I talked about substance use. I talk about alcohol use. Um, I talk about, you know, physical uh, abuse, verbal abuse. Um, I was sexually abused uh, as a child, too, and that kind of, you know, really throws you off, too. You don't, you, you don't know what to make of things, and you certainly can't trust, you know, adults, which turns into authority issues, which turns into more prison problems. I mean, there was a lot of these things, and, and time in a cell can do one of two things. Either you can retreat into yourself from the rest of the world, or you can dig into yourself so you can express that in the rest of the world. I did a little bit of retreating early on and then decided that I needed to try something different. I needed to at least try doing the right thing on um, and then make my decision up. So um, I did. I, I set, you know, as they say, I went 10 toes down on, on doing the right thing. And... I never came back to the other side because I started to realize the rewards of it. 
it wasn't that you get direct rewards. It's not the same rewards that you get when you're when you're you know in criminal behavior. In criminal behavior, you get um, immediate gratification. You get money. You get whatever you stole. You get the version of respect of somebody being afraid there may be consequences. Um, and those all things those are all things that seem to be really nice when you're pretty shallow. Um, but when you start to get some depth to yourself, you realize that there's something more to life. And you want to live a life that, I think it was Socrates that said, that is a, a life of envy, where other people can look about it, look at it and be like, that's a good life, and, they, and, and it's envious. And I wanted to live that kind of life, and I started to do it before I was released, and I just continued it out here. And during your time in prison, did you ever think about escaping? I tried to escape. I didn't only think about it. I attempted to, to, to escape. I have... I have two of them on my record. One of them wasn't, wasn't one of them really wasn't, and that was in the county jail. But I did um, at MTU um, hit the fence. I got caught up in the Constantine wire. They had to come pick me down out of the fence. Funny story: the guy that I went with had extremely wide feet, and they didn't fit in the fence right. And it was raining that day, and these are cork bottom shoes. So he's trying to climb the fence and his feet kept slipping. And so he grabbed the back of my foot as I was almost on the top of the fence and pulled me down. Funny now, not so funny at the time. And adding insult to injury when they took us across the street to the, to the hole at MR, he was like four cells down with, from me. So I had to keep hearing him talk. You know, and it's like, it was like not a, not a good situation. Do you think had he hadn't you know, pulled your foot do you think you could have gotten out? Or? I think I could have, and the odd thing about it was is there was two chase vehicles, and both of them broke down while I was on the top of the fence. Wow. One of them broke down about 150 yards away this way, and the guy who got out was probably about 400 pounds. It took him every minute, every bit of three or four minutes to get that 100 yards, and then the other one broke down about 200 yards away. Um, but, yeah, I probably could have, but I don't know how far I could have gotten away. I was never thinking about it that far all that was I, I was 19 at the time um and all i knew is is this wasn't where i wanted to be i wasn't thinking things all the way through um so yeah i mean i i, I probably could have but for what and then i could have gotten more trouble because i didn't i didn't get charged for it because i didn't get on the other side if i would have got on the other side and one foot would have touched down it would have been a new case so small blessings was there like a specific thing that made you want to try to escape or was it just you didn't want to be in there obviously? Um, well, I mean, there was a lot of things that, that I was at. I was at MTU in 1990 and MTU was where everybody from MR, which is Michigan Reformatory, would go if basically they'd stay six months ticket free. And so there were a lot of people there that were still predators, sexual predators and just predators in general. Um, and I was 19 years old. I was probably weighed 160 pounds, had a 28-inch waist, um, and hair halfway down my back. Um, and I, I know it's kind of hard to tell now, but I was a pretty good-looking dude back then. So as you can tell, as you can imagine, that's probably a little bit of a problem in there. And it was, because I was constantly having to fight uh, in there. And it just, I, 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 that was my first um, incarceration in prison, and I didn't want to, you know, do this for the next two years. So I was going to go, and, and I tried. What was the social life like inside of prison? There were levels of it. It started out where uh, the, 
the circles that I traveled in were pretty shallow. The social life was very much um, transactional, very much how, what can you bring to a situation um, so you would, you know, kind of surround yourself with similar, similar people. Um, that really got kind of to be old hat for me for a while. I'm not a small talk person. Um, one of the most difficult parts about my job now is, is a lot of times that requires that. It requires talking to people that you really don't know that well, you don't know that much about, and so you have to develop a rapport and have small talk. I'm not really good at that. Um, I don't think I'm socially awkward, but I feel awkward, and I don't like doing it. It feels like a waste of time um, to me sometimes. Um, so that's how it started out. Once I, like I said, once I went ten toes down on the other side and doing the right thing, then I started looking for meaning. Then I started looking for who I really was. I, stopped, I didn't read for eight years, which is an interesting fact about me. I didn't read for eight years, not, for, not because I didn't want to read, but because I was reading so much that I was regurgitating other people's ideas. And I realized at some point in time, i got to figure out who I am. You can't really read and take in other people's information until you know who you are and you can process it. Um, so I didn't read anything of substance uh, for eight years. And then after that, and after I made the decision to, know, to, to get on this side, um, the right side of things, um, my relationships took on a whole other level. And I, I, I've got some you know, real friends and real family. I work with, with my best friend right now who is incarcerated um, with me. And we had hours and hours of, of deep conversations about you know, life and the meaning of it and what we owed for what we'd done and what we owe the next generation. And um, So there are some very deep relationships in there. The, the prison is a microcosm of the rest of the world. Uh, it's a small village in some ways. Most, of, most prisons are like twelve to 1,600 people. Um, they have their own chow hall, they have their own library, they have their own school, they have their own gymnasium, um, you know, so, and everybody frequents the same areas. There's a yard where everybody goes on, there's a phone bank where people go out and use all the phones. So you see the same people, you know, on a regular basis. So it's just like anything else that you're going to find some people that you kind of, you know, really jive with and some that you don't. Um, the only difference in there is is that everybody seems to be, you know, looking for a weakness in the ones that they don't get along with. They're either thinking they're going to somehow attack them or they're figuring out a way to attack the others. So you're constantly kind of in this, my wife described it one, one time when we were talking, as a hyper-vigilant state where you're constantly walking around wondering what's going to happen, you know, who's up to what. Um, so you don't trust on a great level. But I found out that as I became more trustworthy, I could beat, I could trust other people, not because they wouldn't let me down, not because they wouldn't betray me, but because I could survive it if they did. And I much preferred having those kind of relationships um, than the shallow ones that kept you safe, air quotes. Were, were you able to communicate with your loved ones inside of prison? Yes, you do have the opportunity to communicate with your loved ones. It is limited, um, and especially depends on where you're at. In Michigan, when I first came into prison, there were like 37 different prisons in the state of Michigan. 
and they 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 vary all the way from um, clear up in Baraga or Ojibwe in the UP, which is on the western side. And if we were to drive from here, it would probably take us somewhere between 20, 10 and 12 hours to get there. So uh, not it's, it's like being in not only in another state, but in some ways another country to, you know, clear down in Detroit. And I went to 15 different facilities. Every facility you go to is a little bit different on their visiting situation, their visiting days. Plus, everybody doesn't want to necessarily drive somewhere else. They've become comfortable going to one place. So visitation was kind of sketchy, but we had that as an option. Um, letter writing, most people out here, even in the 90s, were not letter writers. I could sit down and write because I journaled. I started journaling to learn things about myself so I could write some letters because I would just, you know, write about everything. And phone calls. But phone calls were so expensive at some points in time. There were periods of time where some of my phone calls would cost $15 for 15 minutes. And at other times when they got to be more reasonable, they were still 450 for a 15-minute phone call. So you only have limited access to that. Plus, there's a phone bank of maybe four phones in a unit for 160 people to use. And a lot of random acts of violence that I talked about would take place on the phones because they're, they're, they're small. Situ there's a limited resource, um, and people want to use them. So there are opportunities to stay in touch. You know, And now there are actually JPAYs, which are an email system. It's a slow system. It takes like 48 hours sometimes for them to catch up. Um, but yes, there, there are ways to do that, but they're not always the ways that are most conducive to a good relationship because somebody is usually lagging in one of those things. Either they're not the letter writer or they can't get up for the visits or they can't afford the phone calls. So um, relationships usually take a hit in there. Uh, my wife and I, we did the last 11 years together and, and we were both communicators and we're both writers and so we learned about each other on a level that most people can't. Um, many people will say it was romantic um, because I wrote her like the longest letter I wrote her was 53 pages. And if anybody remembers, you guys aren't old enough to remember a typewriter, uh, real typewriters. We had these typewriters and I sent it to 15 pitch and ran the margins out as far as I could so I could get as many characters on every page. So I get like 145 characters a line. So 53 pages was probably more like about 80. But she wrote those things to me too. And so we really got to know each other on a deep level. But that's a rarity when you get two people who need to communicate like that um, and are so into one another that, and, and are honest about it too because we were both extremely honest we were older so we decided that we weren't going to put our best foot forward we we're going to put all our feet forward and it's like if you want to run run now because i'm going to put all the worst stuff out there and neither one of us ran um and so now we've been together for 14 years um, i made it official uh, a year ago i gave her 18 months after i got home to run she didn't run so now i got her forever was adjusting to normal life after prison difficult? I thought it was going to be a lot more difficult than it was. Um, my wife and I describe this all the time as seamless. It's, it's odd. You cannot possibly imagine that a person would do 27 years um, in that environment and come out here and adjust the way that they did. And I realized that I didn't really adjust that much. I realized it because... My wife took a picture of me 
sitting out on our patio at this time we were on a third floor apartment which was amazing you know being in prison you don't see these expansive things there's always a fence that 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 messes with your field of view and so i'm sitting out there on this third floor balcony you know just looking off into space i got my feet kicked up with some flip-flops on i got ice water in my hand and i'm just enjoying it and she snapped a picture um and she said i'm gonna send this in to you know my friend and uh, um, because I want him to see what the free Adam looks like. Same day, he writes back and he says, he says, Adam don't look any different. He must have been free before he went home. And I think that's ultimately what it was, is one of the most difficult things that happens for people when they're reentering society is, is they've adapted to their environment. So they've become prisoners. They've become inmates, the labels that are cast upon them. And so when they come home, then they have to change all that. And one of the things that I worked very hard on was becoming a human being, a full human being. And so when I was released, I was the same person. My environment was the only thing that changed. And so it made for my transition to be a lot easier um, than many because I didn't have to change up. I had good habits. I had good work ethic. I had, I had um, goals. I had aspirations. Uh, and I had a purpose in life. And the purpose was simplified to not do anything specific. But my purpose, I realized, was to be a beneficial presence. Um, and once I realized that, it really simplified things because it only required two things of me. To be present, to show up, and to be a benefit whenever I was there. Sometimes that's easier than others, but it's really not that difficult. I would say the, the second half, the last 15 or 17 years, I didn't know exactly what I would do, but I knew that it involved people. I knew that it helped, uh, that, that it would have to do with helping people because I started doing it while I was in there. Matter of fact, when I figured out how to go to school, because they don't, they, they, they have college now. They didn't have college during... 24 of my 27 years of incarceration. Um, but I did manage to get friends and family and my own income uh, and I kicked in and I managed to earn my associate's degree through um, um, correspondence courses. When I was trying to figure out what my major would be, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I'll do business or whatever. And I was like, no, I wanted, I wanted to do sociology, but my school didn't have sociology, so I did psychology. So sociology, psychology, and philosophy were my three favorite topics, and that's where all my electives got eaten up with. But that was because it was about people. Because I don't care if I'm in business, I don't care if I'm in broadcasting, I don't care what it is I'm doing. Ultimately, people are going to be, you know, at the center of whatever it was I was doing. So I wanted to understand myself, and I wanted to be able to understand other people. So we know that, like, you know, once you get released from prison, there's a lot of stuff that are really hard to do. Get your IDs, like, figure out your health care, and getting jobs. How did you handle all of that? Well, I was blessed with a pretty good support system, but I was also, like I said, I was doing this before um, I came home. So I already had a plan on how to do these things. Of course, the best laid plans, especially when you're inside, you don't know, you, don't, you, you fill in the blanks in your mind. I didn't realize I'd have to go back and forth between Secretary of State and Social Security office for like three days straight to get it straightened out. Um, so one thing is just persistence and, and perspective. 
Um, I remember sitting at the Secretary of State the day the day I got home, and we waited. This was before COVID, before you set up an appointment, before you could do most everything online. So we're sitting there in the in the Secretary of State for like four and a half hours. I sent my wife to get some Arby's, as a matter of fact. So I'm sitting there with a smile on my face, eating Arby's while everybody else in there has got their mug tore up because they're mad about being there. And it's perspective. I just come from prison. I'm eating Arby's and I'm sitting in a comfortable chair and I'm about to get my ID and I'm getting the process of my driver's license started and all of these things. So I think the main thing is, is just the perspective, the being grateful for the opportunity to do this. You can come out and you can gripe about all the things that you have to do and all the hoops you have to go through, and there shouldn't be that many. There are like 44,000 uh, collateral consequences to incarceration in this country. Those are just the ones that are codified into law. That doesn't count the ones that you know employers put on themselves. So there, I'm not saying the obstacles aren't real. The obstacles are absolutely real, but I also believe that how you approach things decides how you're going to overcome them. I have, for a long time, taken the approach that things could always be better and they could always be worse. So I balance those things out. So whatever it is that I'm dealing with, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I tell people that when I'm writing a check for my, for whatever, for rent or whatever, People think I'm crazy because I got a smile on my face. Who else has a smile on their face when they're giving money away? Me, because I didn't get to do that for a long time. I drive to work. When I drive to work, it's an hour and 15 hour, 20 minute drive. Um, and everybody's like, how can you do that? And I was like, I didn't get to drive for 27 years. This is like headspace. I get an opportunity to think about things, and, um, which I appreciate. So how you do it is, is just by persistence. Um, and coming to places like A Brighter Way, because A Brighter Way, that's what we do is, is we let people, you know, kind of borrow our experiences um, so they don't have to bump their head on all the same things. Um, you mentioned COVID. What was COVID like inside the prison and after you left? I missed COVID. I, uh, my timing of entering, it, it was a double-edged sword. I came home on January 8th and March 10th was when the world started to shut down for COVID. I had just got a job and just got a promotion to field supervisor canvassing. I was in front of the Secretary of State when they literally locked the doors and wouldn't let anybody else in. They were just letting people trickle out after they finished their appointments. Um, the next day I was on Michigan State's campus and they sh shut down Michigan State's campus. So that was on a Friday and then on Sunday I got a call that the job was no more because they shut down the canvassing entirely. So that was an interesting thing. So I, I could have retreated into myself and said, oh, this is terrible. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be able to make this. And instead I saw an opportunity because it made me learn technology more because everything became virtual. So I learned a lot about it. I started doing podcasts in Australia, in New Zealand, in the United Kingdom. You know, I'm on parole. I can't even leave the state, but I'm doing these things everywhere else and learning and showing up. And then I got a job clear down in Adrian doing virtually uh, virtual certified peer recovery coaching. Um, and that was the beginnings of working in a job that aligned with my purpose instead of just getting a job in the factory, just getting a job in a warehouse or something like that. So there was a 
a matter of fact, a brighter way was involved with this, um, with the previous executive director with a podcast that University of Mich Michigan did called Living on LOP. LOP is called Loss of Privileges in, in, in prison. Um, and, and it's basically when you're kind of locked down. So it was lessons that people learned while they were on LOP, while they were incarcerated. Um, because the whole world was talking about how they were locked down and how restraining this was. And we were all like, no. I mean, I saw one guy putting a thing in there. He said, do you have to keep your milk in the toilet to keep it cold? Then you're not in prison. Do you, you know, he was listing all these different things. Then you're not in prison. So it was, it was both for me. The timing of it was a little bit weird. I also got to play a little bit of superhero because I got to take care of my fiance um, and my mother-in-law because they didn't know what to do and they have asthma and things like that so they didn't go out shopping or anything like that so I got to you know go full caveman and go out and you know take care of everybody and do all the shopping and everything so it allowed me to contribute a little bit more but again I think part of it was my approach is my approach was I always look at the opportunity first and so like 27 years is a long time um, after it came out what was the news that surprised you or shocked you the most I think one of the things that's most shocking is is when you live in there, you attribute a lot of things to prison instead of people. When I got out here, it's just as messed up out here as it was in there. Um, and what I mean by that is, is like people aren't really conscious. I describe it as being oblivious. A lot of people run around and they're really oblivious. And, and, and out here, a lot of times you can attribute it to their phones, or they've got earbuds in. I remember when I first started, because I greet people on a regular basis. How you doing this morning? And I didn't think about the earbuds factor. So I was uh, greeting all these people, and nobody was saying anything back to me. And I'm like, everybody's so rude out here. I mean, I started to realize that some of that wasn't the case. Some of it was. Um, but, but that was, I think, the thing that was a little bit the most shocking is, is that I thought that I would have more people that enjoyed the depth of life that I liked, that liked taking a philosophical approach to things, that, that wanted to have, you know, meaningful conversations, um, that cared about one another and weren't ruthless in just a different form. And it isn't that different. The politics of the yard are the politics out here. You know, the difference is, is the things don't jump off as often as they do out here, at least not on a level. I mean, January 6th to me was an, was an example of that. That to me reminded me of riots on a prison yard. And it was prison politics. You know, somebody got wrong in this situation. And then so the, how did they respond with it? They responded with violence. And I guess I was, I, I guess I had romanticized um, the free world and thought that there would be a different component of that. The beauty of it is now is, is that I'm not locked into those places. So when there's something going on on, on the yard somewhere else out here, I can go home, you know, and I don't have to be right there. You couldn't do that when you were in prison, there was no someplace else. There's always a someplace else here. Um, I think that's a good place to stop. Um, thank you <laughs> thank so you much. much. Literally, I, I feel like it's like enlightening to hear about like, I don't know, just all these people that we interview and especially this one. So. That's cool. I, I'm sure you guys get as much out of it as anybody does. I believe that we're doing a podcast too. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing, it's called Conversations About a Brighter Way. 
Um, and so I love the conversational aspect. So when, you know, talk about, you know, living through narratives, I think that's exactly what it is, is when we share this, that's when you, when people understand each other, they're less liable to hate each other. It's all these things that people don't know that they fill in the blanks that create all these other situations. So the best stigma reduction is just a conversation, you know? And I appreciate what you guys are doing, exposing people to several people's stories so that they understand that because I think every one that you hear, you can at least connect with a part of it if you allow yourself to realize we're more similar than we are different. There were so many shocking details in this episode, and one of them was his 53-page-long love letter to his wife. Mr. Grant generously accepted our invitation to share his unique love story while being incarcerated. As always, thank you for your support, and please stay tuned for the next episode.